Well, as we do turn to God's Word now, uh, we're going to look at the remainder of Isaiah chapter 63 this morning and Isaiah chapter 64. Um, the verses that we're looking at this morning are, in reality, just one prolonged prayer to God from the mouth of Isaiah. And what I want you to, in particular, notice about this prayer is that uh, in some ways you could say that this prayer comes from a very confused Isaiah. Uh, not confused in an ultimate sense, but confused in the sense that Isaiah is looking around him to the condition of Israel, to the state of his people, and he's realizing that his people are destroyed, that Israel is devastated. And yet he knows in his head that God is a glorious God and a powerful God and that God has promised good to Israel. And so he's confused about how can it be that this all-powerful God would choose Israel as his people and care for his people, and yet Israel be so destroyed, that Israel be so utterly devastated. And so what he's doing is he's approaching God and he's saying, God, how can this be? You promised yourself to us as a people, and yet look at us now. We are destroyed. Won't you come and help us? And so just hear that that plea in Isaiah's voice. And then as we go on to the sermon, I want to look in particular at how we ourselves can have the same kind of heart is Isaiah, how we ourselves can kind of argue with God the way that Isaiah argues with God in this text, that in the midst of our own trials and difficulties, how is it that we can be so confident in God's power and love that we can cry out to God the same way that Isaiah did and say, God, you need to come and you need to do something. So just listen to this beautiful prayer of Isaiah. We're only going to have one passage to read this morning because we want to read the whole prayer. And so, Jen, you can go ahead and come up and read this prayer for us now. This is Isaiah 63, verse 7 through 64, verse 14 or 12, I think. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them, and in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we may not fear you? That we may, so that we fear you not. 
Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Sorry, one of the more difficult aspects of the Christian life is learning how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And what I mean is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we realize that certain things are true of us in Jesus Christ. We realize that God is for us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that if God gave for us Jesus Christ, then he will freely with him give us all things. And so we have these glorious truths about what we have in Jesus Christ. And yet, we also can just look at our lives today And doubtless, all of us know real pain. We know real pain in the midst of our families. Maybe it's others who are letting us down and who are destroying themselves and it's breaking our heart. Or sometimes we know that we ourselves are are sinners and we're experiencing the consequences of our sin. There could be a hundred other reasons why we are experiencing pain in our lives today. And so we have this discomfort. We have this reality that we are one with Jesus Christ, that God is for us, that our life, even right now, is seated with Christ on high. And yet, on the other hand, we look at our lives today, and sometimes we just have to ask, God, where are you? God, why am I struggling so much with this sin? Why is my family not coming to know you? Why does my job seem like such a dead end? I thought that through Christ you were supposed to give me every good thing. And yet when I look at my life today, so often I'm discouraged, I'm hurting, I experience all kinds of pain, and so we're uncomfortable. Now there's a couple different ways that we as Christians often respond to this discomfort. 
One wrong way that we often respond is we just cease to expect great things from God. We just think, well, I guess this is just how life is supposed to be. Maybe sometime in the future, like after I die, God's going to really fulfill his great promises to me. But for now, I just have to learn to suffer. I just have to learn to grin and bear it. That's one wrong way to respond to this discomfort, to respond to this pain. Another bad way to respond to this discomfort and this pain is to go the way of the prosperity gospel or name it and claim it and to think, well, the only reason God isn't fulfilling all his promises to me is because I haven't claimed them yet. I haven't, I haven't really put my faith in God. And as soon as I put my faith in God, God is definitely going to come through and I'm going to get everything that God has promised to me in Jesus Christ. And again, that would also be a wrong way to go because God's ways are higher than our ways. And so we, sometimes God does want pain in our lives for reasons that we can't fully understand. And so again, what we have to do is we just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to realize that yes, God's promises are for us today in Jesus Christ, but also yes, we will still experience great pain and sorrow. And we have to hold on to both of these realities and not fall off into either ditch. The question for Christians is never how do we simply avoid pain and avoid sorrow because we know these things are coming. The question for us is what will we do with our pain and sorrow? How will we take it to the Lord? Well, in Isaiah 63 and 64, Isaiah gives us an amazing picture of how to take our pain to the Lord, how to take our discomfort to the Lord, how to take our disappointments to the Lord how to not give up on the Lord's promises on the one hand, and on the other hand, how not to deny how we actually feel and the realities that we are actually experiencing. And so again, what I want to look at in our time this morning is to ask the question, how can our hearts be like Isaiah's heart in this text? How can our hearts be these hearts that fully experience the pain and the sorrow that we are now living in? And yet, how can our hearts also be hearts that hold on perfectly fast to all the promises that God has given us in Jesus Christ? How can we get comfortable being uncomfortable? And so there's three main things that we have to do that I want to argue for this morning if we want to have this heart that Isaiah shows us, this heart that is comfortable being uncomfortable. The first thing we have to do is we have to recognize who God is. We have to recognize who God is. So that's holding on to one part of reality, the power of God, the goodness of God. The second thing we have to do is we have to learn to be honest about where we are. So that's holding on to the other part of reality, our suffering today, our disappointment today, our hurt today. We have to learn to be honest about those things and not just try to stuff them under a pillow somehow. And then third, we have to bring those things to God. So we have to marry the two. We have to marry the truth of who God is, his power and his majesty, with the reality of our pain, our suffering, our disappointment. And so we're going to go through each of these three things in the message now. 
So the first thing we have to do again is we have to recognize who God is. Now, there are two parts that Isaiah shows us to recognizing who God is. The first part is to recognize the power and the goodness of God in general. So just recognize who God is overall. But then second, we have to recognize his promises to us in particular. So those are the two parts, recognizing who God is in the first place, but then recognize his promises to us in particular. Now, when it comes to recognizing who God is in the first place, this is what the whole book of Isaiah has been about, is it not? The whole book of Isaiah has been a display of God's power, of God's person. We've seen how God controls all the nations of the earth. Even the superpowers of the earth are under God's control. Isaiah has given us passages like this. This comes from Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8. And again, I think this is among the the loftiest passages in all of Scripture. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So Isaiah is presenting us with this idea of a God who is so high and lifted up that not a single one of his purposes can fail, that no matter how much of humanity stands against him, that God will not lose. He will still bring about his purposes, that this is who God is. This is how great God is. This is the God we worship. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we have come to know in Jesus. Jesus Christ. His power has not diminished in the least degree. Christian, do you realize the God that we worship? Do you realize the power that he has? Just how highly seated he is above all the things that happen on the earth. I know that when we look at the news day to day, we can be tempted to think that the biggest things on the earth are the things that we see in the headlines or in world news, but God is about a thousand times higher than anything going on in world news today. This is his power and this is his majesty. And so if we are going to be able to come to God with our hurts, if we are going to be able to come to God in prayer, come to God in anything, we first have to realize that God is a God who is able to do something about it, that he has all power in his hands and that there is nothing that can possibly stop him. If he is not that kind of God, then where should our desire come from to go to him? If he can't really change things, if he can't really move the earth on our behalf, then why should we go to him in the first place? But it is when we see just how high and lifted up God is, how he does have all power in his hands, that then we feel this invitation, this draw to say, God, I want to come to you because where else should I go? Because you truly can take care of every last issue that I have. And so first we have to realize just how great and lifted up and exalted God is. But, of course, it won't do any good to merely realize that God is great and powerful if he is not also for you. If he is great and powerful and he is against you, or if he is great and powerful and he is indifferent to you, he doesn't care about you, you know, he's just a a grand clockmaker who's wound it all up and now he's left town, 
well, then his power makes no real difference to us. And so we must also be convinced of God's love to us in particular, his promises to us in particular. We must be persuaded that this God, who is over all the heavens and all the earth, is also for us. And this is where we see Isaiah entering into his prayer in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. If you want to look there with me now. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Now that steadfast love of the Lord. In the Hebrew, this means his covenant love, his steadfast love, his love that will never change. So he's going to recount the covenant love of God, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel. So he's looking in particular at God's promises to Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he, shed, he, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. Beloved, can you say that God has become your savior in particular? Do you know that God has chosen you in particular and set his love upon you in particular? This is what God did in Jesus Christ. What Isaiah says in verse 9 is even more true of us. He says, in all their affliction, excuse me, that is in all of Israel's affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And so he is remembering how God promised himself to Israel in particular. And beloved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have been joined to Jesus Christ, then you can be confident that God is for you in Jesus Christ and he has chosen you in particular. Paul, when he is talking about his salvation in Christ, he talks personally. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He knew personally that Jesus had died for him and that therefore God was for him in Jesus Christ. Again, that this God who is over all heaven and earth was now his personally. And if you know that God is yours in particular, then you will have every confidence in the world to bring every last care to the Lord, every last disappointment, every last pain, because you know that God has set you apart and he has loved you in Jesus Christ. In verses 10 to 14 of Isaiah 63, Isaiah continues to recount God's favor to Israel in particular. He remembers how God saved Israel from the nation of Egypt and brought them out to the Red Sea and how he parted the Red Sea for them and let them walk through and then gave them land. He's remembering all the goodness that God has done for them. And so, likewise, you Christians, sometimes if you're struggling with believing that God truly loves you, you need to take a little time and just remember what Christ did. Recount the gospel to yourself. How Jesus came from heaven to earth precisely to make God known to you. How he went to the cross and he suffered and died to bear your particular sins. And how he rose again from the dead to give you new life. And you need to remember what Jesus has done in history to save you in particular. And so you can remember the goodness of God to you and how he loves you in particular. And so this is the first thing that we need to do. We need to recognize who God is overall and we need to recognize who God is for us 
personally. But then, of course, we don't want to stop there. We, second, need to be honest about where we are now. And in some ways, I think this might be the most difficult part of the, the process, the most difficult part of the process of prayer, the most difficult part of relating to God in the first place, about simply being honest with God about where we are now. It can be difficult because sometimes we think, and we think rightly, that, hey, if, if God is all-powerful and if he truly does love me, then who am I to complain, right? Who am I to, to tell God about the various difficulties and frustrations and sorrows that I have? Shouldn't I just be thankful all the time? Shouldn't I just rejoice all the time? And indeed, we can back that up with commands from the New Testament to give thanks in everything and to rejoice at all times, And so there should be a sense in which we're always rejoicing and always thankful. And yet it is also absolutely true that we must learn to bring our sorrows, to bring our pains to God. And this is where Isaiah in particular in this passage is such a wonderful example to us. If you look at chapter 63, verses 18 and 19, it says, Your holy people held possession for a little while, Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And so he's being just perfectly honest here about the condition of him and his people in this moment. He's saying that, you know what, Lord, you may have chosen us and set your love upon us, but right now, if you look at our condition, we're just like any other nation on earth. We're like all those people that you haven't chosen, like you haven't set apart. That's how I feel about where I am right now. That's how I see our nation right now. And so the first thing that he's honest about is he's simply honest about the condition of Israel right now, the condition of his people right now. We see the same kind of idea in chapter 64, verses 10 and 11. It says, your holy cities, he's talking to God, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you. So he's talking there about the temple has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Do you hear how brutally honest Isaiah is being about his current condition. He's not trying to sugarcoat things. He's not trying to say, well, God, I think we'll be okay. I think we can manage. He's saying, no, we are utterly devastated. Everything that we care about, your holy city and the temple itself has been utterly destroyed. That is where we are. But he's not only honest about the condition of Israel, the condition of his nation. He's also honest with how he sees God being involved, how God contributed to this state of affairs. And again, it's just amazing how honest Isaiah is with God in this passage. If you look at Isaiah 63, verse 17, it says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? He's actually saying, Lord, You make us wander from your ways. You harden our heart. 
You see, Isaiah knew this truth deeply. I don't know if you remember back to Isaiah 6 when Isaiah had that encounter with God who is high and lifted up, whose train of the robe was filling the temple, but he had that encounter with God. And immediately after that encounter or in the midst of that encounter, God says, go to this people whose hearts I will harden and who will not hear your words. So Isaiah knew that God actually was at work to purposely harden the hearts of of this people. And so here, where he's praying to God right now about the condition of Israel, he's not afraid to express this truth back to God, to say, God, you have made us wander from your ways and you have hardened our hearts. Beloved, it is true that God is sovereign over all of history. He's sovereign over our own actions. And it is even true that even in our sins, God is sovereign and God is in control over them. And so even though God is not at fault for our sins, he does not cause us to commit sin. Nevertheless, when we go to God in prayer, we can say, Lord, why have you not given me a different heart? Why is it that you have left me cold to you so that I I go into sin in this way? We can be honest with God about the way that we understand God is working in our hearts and working in our lives. And Isaiah 63, 10, when he's talking about the people of Israel of old, he said, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So again, he's not even shying away from saying, Lord, at sometimes in the past, you did turn and you became our enemy. This is what you did. And because the Lord became their enemy, that is why the temple is now burned. That's why Jerusalem is now devastated. It is the Lord's doing. And again, sometimes because we know we need to be reverent toward the Lord, we know we need to have him highly exalted, we just don't want to be honest with about everything that we feel like the Lord maybe is doing to contribute to the problems that we are now experiencing. But the Lord is almighty. He is high and lifted up. And so we don't need to worry that we're going to hurt God's feelings or pin something on him that he doesn't want to own. God owns everything. And so just learn to be honest with him in prayer saying, Lord, I don't understand why you have done this. I don't understand why I have to hurt in this way right now. I don't understand why you're punishing me. I don't understand why you're giving me a cold heart. That's part of being honest with the Lord. And so you have to be honest about where you are. You have to be honest about how you see God contributing to where you are. But third, you also do have to be honest about your own failings. So, right, it wouldn't be right to only pin it on the Lord and saying, Lord, you did this. I had nothing to do with this. And of course, if we're asking for the Lord to change things, if we're asking for the Lord to intervene, oftentimes we would think, well, we probably shouldn't talk about our failings. We probably shouldn't talk about our sins to the Lord because that would be a reason for God to continue to judge us, right? For for him to continue to be against us. But Isaiah doesn't see it that way. Isaiah thinks, no, I need to be honest with my part before the Lord. And even as I'm honest about my part, even as I'm honest about the wrong that I do, I'm still going to ask God to do great things. And so again, Isaiah 63.10, he says, but they rebelled. So he's talking about their rebellion or even more precisely to their situation. Look at the second half of Isaiah 64, verse 5. So the second half of Isaiah 64, 5, down to verse 7. It says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. 
In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. And so Isaiah is just being brutally honest about his own part and the part of his own nation in terms of their standing with God at this point. Yes, he said that God hardened their hearts. He's saying that God became their enemy. But he's also saying that they themselves are sinners. And again, and he's not trying to give any excuses for his sin. He's not trying to minimize the sin. You know, it's not like in this context he's saying, but, you know, Lord, we wouldn't have done this if you hadn't hardened our hearts. He's not trying to compare Israel to other nations and be like, but, you know, other nations are worse and we're just kind of bad. No, he's trying to state his sin. He's trying to state his evil to the fullest. This is why he says that even their righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's why he says that there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. He's saying that even the best things that we think we do are all messed up. And he wants to take full responsibility for his part in this problem. And so this is how he comes to God in honesty. He comes to God in honesty over where he's at. He comes to God in honesty over what he feels God has done in the situation. And he comes to God in honesty over his own sin and his own failings. Now, again, in our human wisdom, I think we would say that if these things are true, if it's true that God is this high and lifted up God, and if it's also true that we are terrible sinners, well, then we should have nothing good to expect from God, right? That when we go to God in prayer, we shouldn't be asking God to bless us. Maybe at most we should just be asking God to not judge us quite as harshly as he could. But this is where this whole prayer of Isaiah takes an amazing turn. That even though he is fully confessing his sin, even though he's confessing that God has been their enemy, nevertheless, when he comes to God, he pleads with God for blessing. And so the first thing that I want us to see about bringing these things together when we come to God, when we come to interact with God, is the first thing we need to see is that we do need to interact with God like a person. Now, when I say interact with God like a person, I'm saying as opposed to interacting with God like he's just a, an impersonal force, or like God could never change his mind or, or do anything different than he has done in the past. Again, I think sometimes in our desire to be righteous and our, in in our desire to have reverence for God and to be pious, we just want to think, well, God, you're, you're so high and lifted up. If you were against me at one time in the past, then you're always going to be against me, and that's never going to change. And yet what Isaiah does is Isaiah sees that God does sometimes change his heart or change his mind toward people. And he changes his heart, he changes his mind, based precisely on the past promises that he has made. So remember, one of the things that we had to recognize was God's love for us in particular. 
And we realize that just because God has set his love on us doesn't mean it will always look like God has set his love on us because sometimes we will suffer and we will have sorrow. And yet in those moments, we can go to God and we can actually plead with God to change his mind. And so look at Isaiah 63, verses 15. See how Isaiah interacts with God as a person in verses 15 and 16. He tells God, he says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And so he's looking at God. He's saying, God, you are our father. You are the one that is supposed to care for us. You're the one that's supposed to love us like a father loves us. And he's saying, God, if you're supposed to love us like a father loves us, then why is Israel so destroyed? Why is the temple burned? Why am I cast down right now? Why does it feel like I have no reason for hope that every last good is gone? And so he goes to God and he says, where are your zeal and your might? God, I do not see them right now. Where did you go? He is treating God like a person. He is wrestling with God in prayer. We see this again going on in 64 verse 9. It says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not your iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are your people. Isaiah is pleading with God to see as if God has not already seen. <laughs> He's saying, God, I think that if you really saw how devastated we are, then I think you would really move. But you're not moving, so I think you must have just not seen. And so I'm going to ask you to see. I'm going to say, please, open your eyes. Look. Look at us. We are your people. And then, most poignantly of all, I think, is verse 12. Isaiah says, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I love that word, will you restrain yourself at these things? You can just picture an earthly father looking at a child who is suffering. And of course, that is going to tug so much at the heartstrings of that earthly father. Is it not when he sees his child suffering? The father is going to want to intervene and to help his child in any way he can to make sure his child no longer suffers. The father does not want to restrain himself. He doesn't want to restrain his mercy. The father wants to help his child. And in the same way, Isaiah is talking to the Lord saying, you are our father. How can you restrain yourself when you see us suffering so much? And beloved, I want to embolden you. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then God is your father. And you can go to the father like this. When you are hurting, when you are suffering, you can say, God, how can you restrain yourself when you see the pain in my heart? How can you restrain yourself when you see all the difficulty of my life? Will you keep silent? Will you continue to afflict me so terribly? And so the first way we have to bring these two things together, the, the pain that we experience and the glory of God, the first way we need to bring these two things together is we need to learn to interact with God like he's a person, a person who can see, a person who can change his heart. 
a person who can intervene on our behalf. God is not just an immovable force whose mind will never change. Rather, when we go to God, we plead with him. We say, God, see, God, will you restrain yourself? And we hope in God to move. So we come to God as a person. But then also when we bring these two things together, we have to seek God's power in our particular situation. We have to seek God's power in our particular situation. So again, one of the first things we had to remember when we come to God is we have to remember just how powerful God is. But again, it doesn't do much good to just remember how powerful God is in some abstract way out there. No, we have to think of our own situation. We have to think of how could God change this? How could God's power come to bear on this situation now? And so Isaiah, again, he's looking at his own nation, how Jerusalem is destroyed, how the temple is burned, how foreign nations have, have overpowered his people. And this is what Isaiah prays in Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 3. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence." Now, in particular, what Isaiah is referring to here when he's talking about the mountains quaking and God rending the heavens is coming down is he's thinking in particular of Mount Sinai when the people of God were gathered around Mount Sinai and there was a great thunderstorm on top of Mount Sinai and there were lightning and flames of fire coming down from heaven as Moses went up that mountain so that the whole mountain shook. And so Isaiah is again recalling God's works in ages past and he's saying, God, why don't you do that again today? He's saying, if you would show up like that today, if you would work like that today, then Israel could be rebuilt in a moment. Your temple could be rebuilt your people could flourish again if you would just show up like you did back on Sinai and this great power and thunder and lightning and shaking the mountains. God, would you show up like that again today? Again, when he's thinking back to how God saved his people from Egypt, if you look at 63 verses 11 and 12, he says, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go with the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Where is the God who did all of these majestic things? He's remembering all of God's great works from of old, and he's saying, God, where is that today? I don't see it today. And so he's trying to apply who God is to his particular situation. Beloved, we can do that same thing today. Nothing makes me more excited, really, than to do that with God's word today. I love to read John 17, for example, where Jesus prays that his people would be one and that we would be one with God. And I say, Lord, Jesus himself prayed that I would be one with you. Why, why do I not feel one with you right now? Why don't you make that happen today, just as you made it happen with your son, Jesus Christ? 
Or I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where I see that in God's church, everyone had a manifestation of the Spirit. You know, there were people prophesying and speaking in tongues and healing and doing all these amazing things. And I say, God, I see you did this in these days past. Why don't you do that today? Why am I not seeing it today, Lord? Where I see in Acts chapter 2 how God created this people. It was all of one heart and one mind who were just so devoted to the Lord in every way, in radical ways. And I see, Lord, you did that as in these days gone by. Why don't you do that again today? But that's how we have to learn to argue with God. That's how we have to learn to pray to God as we just read the word of the Lord and we say, Lord, what I'm reading here, why don't you just make it true? Why don't you just make it happen? Again, we don't have to pretend like, oh, there's some mysterious way that the Lord is doing it that we can't understand, so we just have to be happy with the way things are right now. No, we can remember how powerful God is. We can realize the pain of where we are right now, and then we can cry out to God to bring his power to bear in our lives today, in our church today, in our families today, in our world today. God is fully able to do everything today that he did in ages past. He has not changed. And so we have to envision how God's power might come to bear in our situation today. But finally, when we come to the Lord, and I know this is going to be complicated, it's not easy to see how all these things fit together, but finally when we come to the Lord, we also have to learn to leave our pain in God's hands. We have to learn to leave our pain in God's hands and in God's wisdom. If you look at Isaiah 64, verse 8, so this is close to the end of the prayer, and he says, but now... So it's like he's saying, in conclusion, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so in the end, even though Isaiah has done all this work of wrestling with the Lord, of remembering how great God is, of expressing to the Lord all of his pain, all of his sorrow, and expressing to the Lord, where are you? Why don't you come down? Why don't you move? In the end, this is what he says. He says that at the end, you are the potter and we are the clay and we are the work of your hands. And so it's as if he goes through this prolonged period of prayer where, again, he's demanding of the Lord, he's expressing everything to the Lord, but then in the end, he recognizes where he truly stands before God, that he truly is just a pot, and the Lord himself is the pot maker. And before, in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah brought up this metaphor of the Lord being the potter and we are the clay, the point that Isaiah is making is that the potter has every right over the clay to make whatever kind of pot he wants. And so, in other words, regardless of what sort of pain we are experiencing in our lives today, we must recognize that God indeed has authority to do in our lives what he wants. And if that means that he is going to give us a life of pain and sorrow, yes, we should still wrestle with God, but we should also admit, Lord, you have the right to do this in my life because I am just a clay and you are the potter. Or if the Lord wants to bless us enormously and do amazing things in our life, then we should still be able to confess, Lord, I am just the clay and you are the potter. It's not my own doing that these great things have happened. I am just being shaped by your hands. 
And so at the end of all of our wrestling with God, we need to be willing to say, Lord, we are just the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. And so, beloved, I hope you can see here in the prayer of Isaiah just a beautiful model of how we can relate with the Lord. Whenever we're sharing the gospel with people or just speaking of what Christianity is in general, I know we like to speak of our faith as having a personal relationship with God. And I think that's a a great way to speak of it, that we have a personal relationship with God. But beloved, if we aren't making the sort of prayers that Isaiah is making in here, then it's hard for me to understand how we have a personal relationship with God. If we cannot go to God and be honest about our pain and our sorrow, if we cannot cry out to him as our father and ask for him to move in our lives, then how do you have a, a personal relationship with the Lord? Again, remember that the Lord is not merely some God who is high and lifted up. He is also the Lord who became flesh in Jesus Christ and suffered and died for you so that he could know you, so that he could be one with you. And if that is the case, beloved, then we have this rock-solid foundation to go to the Lord whenever we have pain or sorrow of any kind and to say, Lord, I need you now. I need you to move in my life. I need you to lift this burden. I need you to change this situation. And we can trust through Jesus Christ that the Lord hears, that the Lord loves us, and that the Lord will indeed move. And yes, sometimes we have to be patient. The Lord's not always going to move tomorrow or the next day, though sometimes he will. But if we be patient, if we will hold on to the Lord, then we have this glorious promise from Isaiah 64, verse 4. It says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Beloved, if you will wait on the Lord... If you will wait on him in prayer, if you will wait on him in obedience, you will never be abandoned. You will never be disappointed. You will never be left alone. The Lord alone is the God who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. So, beloved, may we be a people who wait on the Lord, who look to God to do great things, even if we don't see it right now. Would we continue to intercede? Would we continue to cry out, say, Lord, move today? And when he does, may we not be surprised. (laughs) May we not say, Lord, I didn't expect you to do this. Would we say, finally, Lord, you have answered my prayer. And would we rejoice in the great power that God has? Well, beloved, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Again, I just encourage you to cry out to the Lord in whatever way you want. And then in closing, I will lead us in intercession on behalf of our city and the nations. Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you that even though you are not always a God who answers us right away, you are not always a God who we can see moment to moment, that nevertheless you are a God who has promised yourself to us. And therefore, when we don't feel that you are near and when we don't see you moving, that we can cry out to you. So God, I pray most of all right now that you would just give us hearts that trust in you and that cry out to you when we are in need. And so, God, would you give us that heart right now as we cry out to you in our place of need.